You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On this episode, we're going to be talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and the aftermath of that unfortunate verdict. We're going to be welcoming on the podcast Ron E. Turing, who has just written a piece about that. We're also welcoming back Andrew Clark. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. So we're recording this current event section on December 7th, and we're going to be talking about the oral arguments that the Supreme Court made on uh, Mississippi's abortion ban, uh, which happened last week, seven days ago on December 1st. Most everyone has seen this as the beginning of the end for uh, Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion in the United States. So uh, a lot of people are talking about it, and we're going to talk about it for these 10 minutes here. What what predominates to me above everything is the taking away of rights. In this case, a right that's been there for almost a full half century. I grew up in an era where there was an expansion of rights, and then there's okay stagnation. You know, not not progress, but it's very rare to tell people half the population you had this right, and we're taking it away from you, and that's just. Where, where things are going, people have got to wake up that uh, this is just one more headstone in, in what they're doing. They're intent on turning us all into people controlled by the state, people controlled by the corporations, and with, without rights. It's a very bad thing. I'm just continually amazed at how much political gains the right can make, what a um, potent force this singular issue has been for the right over the decades that um, more than anything else, this has united so much of the conservative and Christian right around this issue of the state controlling women's bodies, that this is like sort of a singularly unifying issue above anything else in conservative politics. They planned this for a long time very carefully. It's not that they're geniuses. They've tried a lot of things. A lot of them didn't work. I mean, I remember it must be close to 30 years ago in New York City. I think I was there almost every day for a week defending women going into abortion clinics because they, they had attacks on that and it didn't work. And they, they, they tried killing doctors and they did a little of that. It didn't work. So they, they've had their errors and they've had their, their setbacks. But They've got stick to and they've got a laser focus. After a lot of problems, they, they, they got judges. They thought Supreme Court judges were their judges, turned out not really to be their judges. Then, you know, they've got the Federal Society that vets everybody. And so what they've, they've done a very effective job. It's taken them a very long time, but they, they did a very effective job with a lot of laser focus on the end goal. And this is something that a lot of the left has never understood, that stick-to-itiveness. And then you, you talk about like the Democratic Party, which is 
it's a bunch of disparate interests all kind of thrown together and it, it, there's no real core to it so that, that's part of what, why we are where where we are but you, you keep pushing the issue of, of abortion right that's why it has it has the staying power because it is like the litmus test for, for so much just because they they've chosen it to be that right yeah, well, they chose it, but they chose it because it was they found that this was had the potential to be this animating issue that could really reunite conservatives, you know, Christians, get them all riled up and rabid over something. And it, it could like motivate the evangelical base for decades behind this cause more than a lot of more than a lot of other issues somehow like the issue of yes absolutely absolutely it's not going to work with dr seuss books i agree with you (laughs) yeah see but somehow even more than like racism even more than immigration even more than even like homosexuality like women's health care is like been like at the center of evangelical Christian, whatever, religious, conservative, whatever, whatever you want to call it, politics, it's been like they're, they're at the center of it for decades. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think we need to, uh, at least I need to understand this better than, than I do. I mean, people who talk about fascism and the fascist mind stress that misogyny is really at the root of so much fascist thinking and fascist attitudes. Uh, I think Jason Stanley begins his book on fascism by stressing this issue. It's not something we think about, but it's, it's, uh, I think we need to to focus on a a lot more about why this is so uh, important, because it goes to, it it goes to the issue of, of, like, what a society is, and what you're raising your kids to do, and, and, and all of that. I remember Nancy McLean wrote this book, uh, Behind the Mask of Chivalry, about the um, second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. I read that a couple of years ago, and she she brings out the misogyny of the the second iteration of the Klan really clearly in her book. And I was surprised by that because um, you just think of the Klan as being racist, right? And she talks about how much misogyny was tied in very closely to the Klan, controlling women's bodies, controlling who they associated with and what their role was outside of the home was very much like central to the the clan's politics in that period modernism was so much about the breaking down of so many traditional structures of authority whether they were patriarchy or family structures of authority and this whole era we're living now in is like so regressive and reactionary and, and we're discovering that there's this deep affinity and so much of our pop of the population for these very reactionary ideas. I mean, I think I mean I think you, you your lead was totally correct that taking away rights is so striking in this day and age, um, and that so many people would be in favor of this, and and that this would be like such a motivating idea that it could galvanize a movement for like decades to take rights away from women. Um, people made a big deal about the fact that. Some of the just conservative justices were, in their attempts to justify um, breaking precedent, there are examples of other Supreme Court cases that broke with precedent were ones in which precedent uh, was broken with in order to give people rights, like Brown versus the Board of Education or you know, legalizing same-sex marriage, which seemed to be like so, so disingenuous and almost like um, trollish to be, be using those sorts of arguments. My sense is 
that they were testing the waters to see what they could get away with. Get away with in terms of just the oral arguments or like in terms of public opinion? In terms of public opinion, in terms of the, 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 the pushback and, and the degree of outrage and what people are going to do about it. Uh, I mean, this is not a court that cares about its legitimacy. It cares about its survival. The, the Supreme Court has no enforcement powers and decisions could be ignored just by the way the, the structure of government works. And so basically what it relies on to do its stuff is that the other branches of government and the people acquiesce to its decisions and accept them. And they're pushing the boundaries very, very fast and very hard, but we know that they're extremely concerned. The, the hard right people on the court, what was it, during the summer, they went out in this major campaign to basically say, you know, we're not just a bunch of political hacks. So, you know, a bunch of political hacks are telling us they're not a bunch of political hacks. They're, they're, concerned, they're concerned about that. All of the polls show that belief in the legitimacy of the, the court is down, and Justice Sotomayor made a really uh, strong statement last week about that. You know, to a legal mind, I guess it's not crazy to say, well, we've overturned precedent when we have uh, Brown versus Board of Education to uh, say that segregation is, is, is not allowed. That overturned a precedent, and we've got same-sex marriage, and that overturned a precedent. So, like, hey, what's the problem here? I mean, maybe to a legal mind that, that, that makes sense, but, you know, in terms of how people actually think there's a big difference, right? Like you're saying, between expanding the realm of rights and, like, cutting them off. It goes to the issue of them testing what they, they could get away with, with some really crazy stuff. There, there was there was that issue. Amy COVID Barrett said some really nutty stuff. Yeah, I mean, she apparently was arguing, like, if we can require people to get a vaccine, then we can require them to carry through a pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah you're, right, you're right, like, that, right, 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 right. <laughs> just bad. I mean, this is crazy coming from a woman who's had, like, seven kids or something it's like <laughs> i mean that's nutty and and the other thing she said is like hey like what's the big deal first of all people can get an abortion some other state and 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 hey you know even if you uh, carry the uh the, the fetus full term you can just give it up for adoption so you know you're not required to we're not forcing people to bear the burden the financial burden the psychological burden of raising kids so like what are you all complaining about I mean, that's a really outrageous argument, and it's not a legal argument, it's just, I, I, I think they're, 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 they're testing how, how far they can get away with this stuff. The other thing that's striking is that um, the majority of Americans support the right to abortion, mm-hmm. uh, by far. Yes. So we're looking at a conservative court, which is taking rights away from half the population, appointed by a unpopular president and an unpopular Senate that didn't represent the majority of Americans, basically imposing like a level of Christian fascism on the whole country undemocratically. And this is sort of like the model for conservatism in the future. Uh, You know, these fascists and authoritarians are not going to be doing things that most of the country wants, but they've figured out how to solidify their power anyway and to impose these sort of Christian fascist ideas on everybody else. 
But all is not lost. There's always a chance to fight back. We'll see what happens in the coming year. Hopefully this will be a real chance for people to get organized and to really to, to fight against this stuff. Um, that is all the time we have for this current event session. Up next, our conversation with Ronnie Turing uh, about the Rittenhouse trial. We are recording this on November 30th, and we're going to be talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. Our guest today is Ron E. Turing. He is the author of a new piece in With Sober Senses called Rittenhouse Verdict, Vigilante Violence Against Black Lives Matter Goes Unpunished. Ron is from uh, Wisconsin and attended the protests in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, in response to the Jacob Blake shooting, and was there the night before the Rittenhouse shooting occurred. Also joining us is Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, who is often on the podcast. And of course, Andrew Kleiman is here as always. So Ron, most of our U.S. listeners are probably pretty familiar with the Rittenhouse shootings. But could for those listeners who are not from the U.S., could you give a brief summary of the events? Yeah, and I appreciate you guys having me on. To give a little bit of background about the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse murders, the Murders occurred at protests for justice for Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is a town of about 100,000 people that's south of Milwaukee. The events of the shootings occurred on the third night of protests when Kyle Rittenhouse came up from his hometown of Antioch, Illinois, armed with an AR-15 assault rifle and a medic bag that he was supposedly going to use to apply medical care to. That never ended up happening. And what kicked off the shootings was an altercation near an, a parking lot that Rittenhouse was, quote, defending, unquote. Rittenhouse fired and killed two protesters, Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum, and then wounded a third protester, Gage Groskowitz, uh, who was shot in the arm. Rittenhouse claimed self-defense because he felt threatened in this encounter. But that fact did not truly bear out in the trial, but he was able to walk away with by claiming self-defense. Yeah, you participated in a protest uh, in Kenosha uh, demanding justice for Jacob Blake uh, the day before Rittenhouse came to Kenosha. Can you tell our listeners who Jacob Blake is and what was the situation like in Kenosha when you were there the day before? Was something happening that would lead reasonable people to show up armed with military-style assault rifles? So Jacob Blake was a citizen of Kenosha, and on August 23rd, police were responding to a scene that he was involved in. There was an altercation in his van. He had a kid in his car. And he was trying to drive away from a scene. A police interaction occurred, which ended up with the police shooting Jacob Blake seven times in the back. He has survived miraculously, but he's still in chronic pain and paralyzed. As for the situation in Kenosha, the night of the shooting of Jacob Blake, protests occurred immediately. A curfew was in place at 8 p.m., but people protesting both for justice for Jacob Blake and against the protesters did not follow the curfew. There was property damage that did occur in Kenosha. A used car lot was partially burned. Some businesses had windows broken. When I was there, 
there was two separate protest walks going on. The one that I was a part of started in the downtown Kenosha area, walked through some residential and back to the courthouse. This was genuinely peaceful affair. There was people chanting justice for Jacob Blake, Black Lives Matters. It was organized. There was no altercations. And again, this was all before the curfew at 8 p.m. So it's hard to justify showing up with a military-style assault rifle. But you can see if your goal is to prevent property damage, you could justify it in your mind to bring an assault rifle to Kenosha to try to prevent that. But it was a side effect of the protests and not the main goal of the protests. So a lot of people are talking about the judge's behavior during the trial, which was shocking and strange often. Um, What role did he play in getting Rittenhouse acquitted? And what is going on with the judge? Um, Is he just a judge who was unusually sympathetic to defendants, as some have suggested, or was he guilty of you know, ideological bias or some sort of political and racial bias. What's your take on this? Yeah, this is one of the first trials that I have followed pretty closely. And I was just shocked. Every day, something came out that the judge had said or done in the court that made me question like this guy can be a judge or this is appropriate in a court of law. I mentioned some in the article, for instance, uh, before the trial had even started, the judge had prevented the prosecutors from referring to the people shot by Rittenhouse as victims. This is supposedly a longstanding rule in his court, but he wanted to prevent using biased terms to refer to the the victims. And instead he su- suggested you could refer to them as rioters or looters. And I would argue that is just as biased of a term, if not more biased than referring to somebody shot <laughs> as a victim. Yeah. I mean, what the judge said about the, the, the rioters and looters is if the defense could uh, bring forward evidence that they were in fact rioting and looting, then those terms would be admissible. But something I read midway through the trial was that the defense had not yet done that. Yeah. And another point that I mentioned on in the article, on day three of the trial, the judge, Bruce Schrader, gave a, quote, unusual soliloquy, end quote, discussing media and social media coverage of the trial. This was reported by CNN that he went on a rant or what sounded like a rant for 10 to 15 minutes referring to coverage by Don Lemon of CNN that he thought was unfair and painted him in a bad light. And at the end of the rant, he actually excused himself from the bench and left, suggesting that media coverage was getting to him, which as a impartial judge... That should not be affecting him in that way. It's highly unusual. It's not unusual to attack the media if you're getting bad press. <clears throat> a judge is, quote, only human. But he clearly was and is a bit of a nut and uh, shouldn't have been assigned this case or shouldn't be allowed to be on the bench at all. The fact that he's uh, known as sympathetic to defendants 
you would say, oh, you know, that's good. He's a nice liberal judge. He doesn't want to lock everyone up. But of course, as soon as race comes into the picture, everything's different. As we get into what actually went on at the trial, this will become more and more evident that he's actually making rulings to benefit Rittenhouse and not any uh, sense of fairness or giving him a fair trial. He had a ridiculous trial, in my opinion. I'll just add two other things that the judge did that, to me, just illustrates that he kind of was ruling in a kangaroo court. On, on Veterans Day, the judge had everyone stand and applaud for the veterans in the, the courtroom, but the only veteran was the witness on stand for the defense, suggesting a bias and to give more credibility to that witness over other witnesses. And then another, he made a offhanded joke about the takeout food delivery for the the people involved in the court case, uh, saying because it was Chinese food that he was saying, I hope that we can, can get it in in time, uh, making reference to the supply chain issue, but also possibly like somewhat racist coverage. It was just a very bizarre and not really professional joke in the courtroom setting. And that that also reminds me, a third one that I had forgotten about until now was his ringtone went off during the trial one day and it was Trump's inauguration theme, suggesting, oh my God. <laughs> suggesting that he has some, some other biases that exist. Oh my God. What's Trump's inauguration theme? I think it's God bless the USA. Uh, Lee, Lee Greenwood. And that may have been a stunt. It happened more than once, though. His his phone went off a number of times in the trial, which is extremely unprofessional. I heard him just go at in this tirade against the prosecutor for introducing something that into evidence, you know, or making an allegation that he wasn't allowed to. I mean, in a way, it was just the jury was not in the room. But if there was any chance that the jury could pick up on it. That alone, just the vociferous, just the, it was a really angry, hostile tirade against the, the prosecution. So that alone, I was like, oh my God, this is like bias for the whole world to, to know. In any case, and uh, you know a lot about the law, Rittenhouse was acquitted on grounds of, quote, self-defense. And in his article... Ron writes that, quote, uh, the facts seduced at trial show that he had no genuine claim of self-defense, which was the legal fiction that exonerated him. Do you agree with what Ron said? Uh, yes, I, I certainly do. But he and the judge and Wisconsin law are using the term self-defense in completely different ways. And that's the problem. Okay, so what is the difference between self-defense, the way that you use it, and I guess the way I would use it, and the way that the Wisconsin law and judge use it? Well, to me, in the ordinary sense, the words just mean you're protecting yourself from imminent serious harm. And in Wisconsin, they let you use it if you're protecting your property or apparently if you're protecting someone you don't even know's property, as Rittenhouse claimed he was. It doesn't have any real relationship to the amount of harm that you're threatened with because he was not threatened, only one of the people he shot had a gun and pointed it at, at him. 
And even in that case, it's not clear that he had to shoot or be shot. Uh, but certainly bringing a, a military-style rifle to a, to a peaceful demonstration, even if you think there may be some rioting and looting, and marching around all night with the gun and pointing it at people and confronting people is, is not self-defense you also shoot them or else it provoked the need for self-defense and the wisconsin law says you can shoot people if you reasonably believe that you're in this imminent danger but if you created the situation if you made the whole situation dangerous and then you shoot someone you're not supposed to be entitled to that defense And I think it's obvious to anyone who watched any of that trial and knew that he came from out of state. He came after reading on the Internet that right wing groups were calling for people to go to Kenosha with their guns and defend the property. That was not admitted at the trial about that right wingers or even the fact that he had associated with extreme right-wingers. We're talking about racist, white supremacist organizations. So none of that went into the consideration of whether he was using self-defense in a reasonable way. To me, it's crazy that as soon as a defendant raises self-defense, the whole burden of proof, the main part of the trial, the burden of proof shifts from the defendant having to show why he shot those people uh, to the prosecution having to show why he shot those people. The prosecution has to prove he was not in fear for his life or serious bodily injury. And that's extremely hard to do uh, when a person says, I was scared to death and they were guns around him. It's just crazy. It makes the burden of proof almost impossible to bear. And in this case, clearly it made it impossible to bear since he was not convicted of anything, even the lesser charges, even shooting the unarmed people. So I think it's defense that is just horrible. I mean, we don't have that in New York or not to that extent. But apparently it's quite common in other places and it's extremely popular with the right wing who want to be able to shoot anybody and say it was self-defense. Well, why don't we talk about this redefinition of self-defense? Because as you point out, Anne, this, these sort of stand-your-ground laws are now on the books in a whole bunch of states in the U.S. The right wing, especially the NRA, the National Rifle Association, has been lobbying for these sorts of laws that loosen the definition of self-defense. And these stand-your-ground laws allow people to kill other people in a confrontation rather than retreat. And they've been adopted in I can't remember the number of states, but many states. I live in, a, I think, Pennsylvania, where I live, is now a stand-your-ground state. And it seems that the right wing is increasingly pushing a very expansive conception of self-defense. There was a recent essay by Jamil Smith in Vox, and he wrote that, quote, For conservatives, the resurgence of extremist white supremacist violence and intimidation during the last several years has been an act of self-defense. The same people who support Rittenhouse believe the country needs defending from people who aren't white, end quote. 
Do you agree? Do you think this is this is I guess a question for Ron? Do you do you agree with this way of framing this notion of self defense, its relationship to white supremacy? And if so, what can we do in response to this kind of mentality that regards any challenge to white supremacy, any change to quote unquote our way of life as a mortal threat that needs to be crushed? I definitely agree that self defense is used in this broad sense as in a way to prevent change or to prevent what they see as their way of life eroding. I'm going to leave it up to the the panel to decide how do we respond to this mentality because I do not have an answer right now. I think it's a tough question to combat this idea that you need to defend your way of life. I can't wrap my head around that. Brendan, I think we have to distinguish who we're talking about. Um, yes, it's self-defense is common in many states. New York is probably the exception and not the rule. And people throughout the South, especially white people, and maybe the West too, consider carrying around your gun and shooting people who bother you as a perfectly legitimate way of life. On that note, I, I wanted to make a comment about an earlier question, which asked, was something happening in Kenosha that would lead reasonable people to show up armed with military-style assault rifles? Well, it depends what you mean by reasonable. To the extreme right wing, it's very reasonable. They were looking for a fight. They wanted to shoot people who were demonstrating over Black Lives Matter. Black and white people, because they consider all white demonstrators to be from Antifa and that to be just as dangerous as black militants. So it was perfectly reasonable for them to, Rittenhouse, to come 40 miles from another state with a rifle, uninvited, not knowing anyone there, not having any interest in people or property there but come with his gun ready to do vigilante justice. And that's where we're headed with this self-defense is that white people can shoot anybody they want anytime they want. And we see that in other trials that have been going on lately. And I don't know how you shut it down, except I know the the uh, new Black Panthers have a way, they think, very much like the old Black Panthers, is that they show up with guns too. But I don't know that everybody carrying guns and shooting at everybody is a solution to our problems. I mean, I, I, I think that this mentality wherein any challenge to white supremacy, any uh, attempt to change things to, that alters people's way of life. I think this is clearly it's part of a broader right-wing feeling of victimization and feeling that what's going on is a life and death struggle for what they call survival. And you get the great replacement theory, you know, the, the Jews are out to replace us and the communists and all, all of this. I mean, this is all gaslighting. And the religious fundamentalist right has aspects of this too, where if they are not in absolute control, they regard that as a threat. Okay, so everything is upside down. It's very much newspeak. It's very much 1984. And this this whole stuff about, you know, our way of life, this is an old, old racist trope. This is what was used to, you know, defend uh, segregation and stuff uh, in the South before and during the, the civil rights era. What I think 
we, we have to conclude, and this is the, the, the first thing we've got to do in order to, to, to combat this, we, we've got to understand that these people are serious. They are out for total control. There is no possibility of compromising with them. There is no compromise between do not change our way of life, do not do anything to alter white supremacy. You, you can't compromise with that. There is, it, it does not, it's not a position that allows for compromise. You've, you've got a lot, a lot of people now in this country who see themselves as part of a life and death struggle for, for this white supremacy. We're not going to be able to convince them. And we have to understand whether they now understand that they're not going to stop at anything. That is the actual dialectic. That is the actual trajectory that this thing is going down. They will stop at nothing. It's extremely scary. And I think that we need, you know, an opposition, a resistance, uh, a left that understands this and is equally uh, prepared not to give up and not to give in. Ron, in your article, you talk about um, evidence that Rittenhouse was racist or had some bad inclinations um, that was withheld from the jury. Can you explain what that was? Yeah, so there was an incident that was filmed by Rittenhouse and his friends two weeks prior to the incident where Rittenhouse was in the parking lot of a Walgreens and saw what he thought was a shoplifter come out of the store. And he is quoted on the video as saying, man, I wish I had my gun right now. I would shoot them. The judge did not allow this evidence to come before the court. I don't know exactly the legal grounds, but if this evidence was presented before the jury, it might hint at Rittenhouse was looking for violence that he was intending to do violence and that his self-defense claim is is bogus because he has a history of being violent and seeking violence. He was also filmed on camera last year punching a girl his age in the face in an altercation. Again, just hinting at a history of violence and seeking out violent situations and resolving those situations with violence. People like Trump and Tucker Carlson were overjoyed at Rittenhouse's acquittal. Outright Nazis were even more overjoyed. One of them posted the following on the Telegram platform. Quote, your impotent rage only makes the victory all the more sweet for us. Literal national socialists are celebrating your failure. We hope that eats away at you for a long time. Hail Rittenhouse. End quote. But they weren't crowing for all that long. Soon thereafter, a jury in Charlottesville, Virginia ruled that people and groups that organized the 2017 Charlottesville Unite the Right rally have to pay $26 million in damages. And shortly after that, a nearly all-white jury in Brunswick, Georgia, ruled that the three white men who killed Ahmad Arbery, a black man who was jogging in their neighborhood, was, were guilty of murder. Each of these incidents and each of these trials had its own distinctive features. Nonetheless, they're all about racist violence perpetrated by private citizens. And they're all about efforts to secure a modicum of justice within the legal system. Considering the verdicts as a whole, where do you think we stand now? What I am seeing right now is what was already a rising white supremacist movement, but now they have what they see as the backing of the, the state and the judicial system. For instance, the weekend after the Rittenhouse trial, the verdict was given 
Proud Boys protested, marched in large cities around the country, I think Seattle, New York, LA, and they, they saw this as an overwhelming victory for them. And just to point out, the Proud Boys have been fairly quiet since the January 6th insurrection. The FBI had labeled them a terrorist organization. Uh, so the fact that they're coming out again from their hiding suggests that they see it as a as a victory for them. I looked it up just today, and they they continue to march on Long Island continuously. So these these groups are not going away without some major consequences for them. Well, it does indicate that the legal system is changing in terms of what can be counted on. I don't think you can make any conclusions from these three recent decisions that were in different states and different fact situations and all that. But we know that it's virtually impossible to get a policeman convicted from killing someone. That's just a longstanding tradition. So when that changes, and it did a little bit with the George Floyd's murder, that's, I think, a, a more important consequence to say that these clearly racist, horrible people in uh, Georgia and in Virginia were any kind of a example to anyone or someone's going to go out and follow them, I don't think so. The most important factor in these trials seems to be the video. That's why the cops mostly turn or often turn off their video cameras that they're required to wear because they know that could convict them. But it didn't help the prosecution in the Rittenhouse case where they had video. Only one of the people shot was armed. The other two were not doing anything or not anything threatening to him. So I would not call it legal trend. What's the important legal trend, in my opinion, is what happened in uh, against the organizers of the Unite the Right rally. It was a civil action. They were sued by the injured and the uh, estate of the murdered person hire for damages. And that's what the 26 million is for. That's an excellent way to bankrupt these far-right groups. It's not the first time it's been used at all, but it's certainly the wave of the future is to try to bankrupt them because that really curtails their activity. So I hope that's a trend. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a book from way, way, way back by a black leftist named Bill Epton, and the book was called Negroes with Guns, which back then was even more shocking, you know, to white people than it is now. But what we've got now is Negroes with phone cameras, and that makes all the difference. I mean, uh, we know it made a huge difference in getting the murderer of, of George Floyd. It made a huge difference in the Ahmad Arbery case. Be before that, video evidence surfaced publicly and people made a big, big thing about it. The, the murders were going to be covered up. You had connivance between the prosecution and, and the murderers. And now not only are the murderers convicted of murder, but the prosecutors and somebody in the sheriff's office who was involved in trying to bury all this, well, the law in Georgia is now going after them. I mean, obviously, this is this is a trend that will continue. And in some cases, it will result in a modicum of justice. I mean, not real justice because I mean, dead people remain dead. But the question I think that is 
Brendan posed to us is where do we stand? I think there is a deterrent effect. And so I, I think that the, the verdict coming down from Brunswick, Georgia is a deterrent. I think that the Charlottesville verdict is a deterrent. And my guess is that it, it blunted some of the, the high-fiving and celebration and the Hail Rittenhouse and, and all of that kind of stuff from far-right brethren. You know, of course, Black people are still being gunned down in the street by vigilantes and by the cops all the time. So, it, yeah, it's no solution. But I, I think that the other two trials have blunted their sense that they're marching to victory and our sense that, you know, everything is hopeless. I mean, I was like totally crushed. After everything that had happened at trial, as people have been telling us, I expected Rittenhouse to get off, but it was still just like really like, it just makes your your, your heart sink. And the, the other things kind of like give you a little bit of hope. I think what the trials have taught these white supremacists is that they should turn off their video cameras and phones and not video everything. I mean, the Georgia case, it's insane, right? One of the three defendants videoed the whole thing. So there was nothing he could say about self-defense because it's clear from his own video that Arbery never threatened him. Arbery never did anything, didn't even speak to him. All he did was try to run away from him and the other guys. So he hanged himself with the, with the video. So maybe it will lessen white supremacist attackers from videoing what they do. I guess they do it so they can, you know, brag to their friends and associates about it. But it's not a very good idea. I don't, you know, I don't think it's going to change the way they act. The way they act has been going on for too many centuries. One of the most frightening things about the Rittenhouse case and the Ahmed Arbery murder uh, is just the way that so many of these vigilantes see themselves as aligned with law enforcement, um, ideologically see themselves as like an extension of law enforcement. I mean, in the Rittenhouse case, um, he was even apparently encouraged the night of the shooting by a police officer who said something to him like, oh, we're glad you guys are out there. It's like, we're glad there are armed teenagers running around with assault rifles um, protecting parking lots. And then in the Ahmed Arbery case, these guys thought they were form- performing some sort of citizen's arrest by driving around in their pickup trucks with shotguns. It's very reminiscent of the Klan in the South for most of the 20th century, um, acting as this sort of like extension of the police department, this symbiotic relationship between um, policing and mob violence. Uh, it's especially true in the um, Georgia case where the defendants were not charged with anything for six months because a prosecutor who was friendly to them, one of the defendants, an ex-policeman, and was a pals with the ex-prosecutor and was just going to let them off scot-free. And in fact, there's some evidence he, t- he told them to go home and wash the blood off them and be quiet. So that's hand in glove. And that's gone on all the way back to the end of Reconstruction, the end of the 1800. There's been this alliance with uh, law enforcement, and law, not just an alliance, an identity between the people who go into law enforcement and the people who burn crosses on lawns on their nights off from work. That being said, there's, I think, very limited expectations we can have from police reform 
and always has been limited. And maybe that's why we haven't gotten much after a year and a half of protests since uh, George Floyd's murder. I also want to add that the proof of this assumption that the police or their friends by the extreme right wing was really shown up on January 6th because some of the police there did cooperate with the insurrectionists, let them in the door, didn't go after them until it was too late to stop them. That you can see in some of the videos, but what the investigating committee is finding out now, we we don't know the full extent of it, but it's really clear that they tried to get the Capitol Police and the D.C. Police to work with them, not against them, and came to combat with them only when the police resisted that line. I think the people in and around the Democratic Party need to understand that time is slipping away very rapidly. There's less than a year until the midterm elections. They've got the so-called trifecta. They've got control of the Senate. They've got control of the House of Representatives. They've got the executive branch. They've got the Department of Justice. They've got the military and so forth. If you let these people arm, if you let them organize, if you let them speak with one another with impunity, not disrupting their ability to do that, they get stronger, they get more vicious, they get more threatening. It's harder to fight them. The most peaceful possibilities, the possibilities for the most peaceful resolution are right now. The public has got to understand and maybe get those people, you know, the Democrats to understand that it really is a life or death situation. They have to act now. Time is slipping away and this is their best chance. If they lose some of the power they have, it's going to be so much so much harder in the future. And I, I, I cannot imagine what the consequences of that are. You know, Merrick Garland does have a Justice Department. The U.S. does have a military and so forth. I think the movement has, has got to put utmost pressure on them to make the Democrats come around and get away from this, you know, majoritarianism uh, or whatever it calls itself, popularism whereby you're, you're going to try to like buy off white nationalists with build back slightly better if Joe Manchin lets us. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. 
MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So we've talked a little bit about the fear that Rittenhouse's acquittal will encourage more racist violence. Will this also discourage people from participating in Black Lives Matter protests and other anti-fascist or left protests? Or do you, is this something we need to be worried about? If so, do you think it's still the case now that the Charlottesville and Ahmaud Arbery verdicts have come in, or have they changed that calculus? Your thoughts, Ron? Yeah, from my own personal experience, I have had friends express doubts about uh, showing up to support BLM protests. I am white, and I think that with white people who support the BLM movement, it is violence that we didn't think that we would have to face. I don't think black or minority supporters of the BLM movement have ever thought of this as not a violent or dangerous situation. I think it changes the calculus for um, white supporters. I don't know if that's fully justified that whites should step back from the movement. I think it's uh, important to show strength, but it does put a damper on the spirit that, you know, to know that somebody could show up with a military grade assault rifle and, and shoot to kill. It's, it's a dangerous time uh, for protesting. It needs to be part of your thinking with protests as it should be at any point. But it is still good to show up and, and help the movement because it's it's only with continued support that we can make any changes at all. So, Ron, you indicated that you spoke with or communicated with people who were kind of cowed uh, by the Rittenhouse decision from future participation in protests. Was this before or after the other two verdicts came down? Yeah, so this was in between the two verdicts. That is true. The verdict does indicate and show to supporters that these protests 
can be violent even when you want it to be peaceful. And it's it's not violence from the protesters, it's violence from the anti-protesters that, that they are ready to shoot to kill uh, anybody who is challenging their way of life. Yes, maybe the calculus will change a little bit in Charlottesville and Ahmaud Arbery cases, but at the same time when you see somebody claim self-defense and get off with shooting protesters, it does... It does make you worry if you're going to be the next victim of that violence. We should note what's new is that the people who were killed, both in Charlottesville and Kenosha, were white. And it may well inhibit white people from going to BLM events. Certainly it'll make their mothers say to youth, don't go there. It's too dangerous. This is a far cry from the 1960s. I'm old and I go back to the 1960s. And in those days in dangerous situations, we put the black people in the center of the march. That is the the middle area of the march, march with white people on the outside area and the front and back. So that people coming to assault, the black people would have to get through the white people. I think now that has changed completely. The the war has been declared based not only on race. Of course, black people are always evil in their views, but also there's a big divide among white people and the extreme right is willing to kill the white people too. So I think it is scary, but it's also doubles and triples the reason to go to these protests. The more people there are, the more protection there is. And I don't mean that you have to use your body to stop blows against someone else. I mean, just that they can't, the attackers can't be anonymous. They will be filmed by the other protesters. All sorts of reasons you can think of why it's better to have a lot of people. And also, you are trying to influence the community and the government and everyone else. So you need to show you have numbers. We need to have hundreds of thousands in the street, as we did after George Floyd's murder all over the country. And that kind of massive protest. I don't know how many people were in Kenosha. Maybe Ron does. But in the videos they showed in court, it seemed to be just like a a few people running down one block and up another block. It didn't look like uh, what I'm used to as a a mass protest. And that's always going to be dangerous when the right wing is there gunning for you. Yeah, to Anne's point about the protests in Kenosha, the Rittenhouse violence was definitely on the outskirts of the protests, which indicates to me that protests should be well-coordinated. You shouldn't diverge from the group. Yes, protests in Kenosha were very different, I'm sure, than New York or large cities. Uh, When I was there, there was probably two protests of about 200 to 300 people each walking through the streets in separate areas. And then when they came together, there was maybe a total of 500 people at most uh, near the Justice Building in Kenosha. So it's a smaller scale, and that may be, speaking to Anne's point, where white supremacists felt because that the support was not there on the BLM side that they felt they could do violence and not face consequences. So the lesson is large numbers need to be there for protests to dissuade anti-protesters from committing violence. 
So where do we go from here? In terms of activity, Ron's article discusses Black Lives Matter activity and community organizing and strikes by professional athletes such as the Milwaukee Bucks. On the electoralvote.com website, um, RB in Concord, New Hampshire wrote, quote, sadly, the Rittenhouse verdict demonstrates why the left must arm, much like the Black Panther Party. Once those on the left show up with their own militias to defend protesters from the right, my guess is the dynamic will change, close quote. But the question, where do we go from here, isn't only about activity, it's also about the ideas that the struggles for freedom need, what lessons can be learned, and should we learn from the trials in Kenosha, Charlottesville, and Brunswick, Georgia. To, to be honest, where do we go from here? There's, uh, as a spot in the larger movement, I think we're a year and a half away from the murder of George Floyd, and there hasn't been big shifts in policing reform. I mean, small policing reforms have gotten done. Bans on chokeholds, for instance, or some budgetary motions have been passed to move funds around a little bit here and there. But the larger reforms, such as in Minneapolis, where the city council voted unanimously to get rid of the police, and then all of the levers of bureaucracy got in the way, and actually then the citizens voted to not get rid of police. I think it, we're at a, at a point where the, the movement needs to look at, at theory, at something other than activity to really explain why things have not changed and to come up with a different approach. I mean, there there's a lot of options. This is a wide-ranging issue. Policing is affected by poverty, mental health, um, the school systems, homelessness. I mean, it's a it's a wide-ranging issue that all comes under the policing realm. In Milwaukee, for instance, there was a push. Uh, with the county budget to limit the just automatic increase that happens with the sheriff's budget every year. There was some success. So, for instance, the sheriff's budget wanted $1.2 million to repave their parking lot. And the the city council determined that that was, that was not useful. And instead, that money is going to parks and public pools and actually funding to park rangers in the Milwaukee area. So, those types of things where we directly take funds that are going to the sheriff's department that have just been automatic in the past and shifting them to funds that help the citizens of the city is a big step forward. Um, it doesn't doesn't mean that that is the full answer to the question. More funds need to be diverted to tackle poverty and tackle, tackle homelessness. Those issues justify policing in the minds of people who want police to be part of uh, the solution. So we need to think broad picture of how do we tackle policing, not just not just in the uh, the sense that police are the only ones who can solve crimes or that police are protecting us, but also that we can look at the causes of crime and try to raise those people up rather than push them down from police. Well, the uh, movements against police brutality have always had severe limitations and that you're not going to reform the police in isolation from the rest of society. And we have such an ingrained system that favors the right-wing mentality that there's no way to cut it out of American society without a huge conflict. 
So whether we're talking about civil war or what we're talking about, this has to be fought out, not just on the level of reforming the police, but on the level of having a, a new human society versus the one we're living in. So that requires a whole nother discussion about how do we get from here to there? How do we get beyond continuous horrors that we have to protest and spending all our time protesting to another level of activity? And in MHI, we think that the role of theory is extremely important. We concentrate on developing theory for the movements, along with the mass movements, with their ideas, with Marx's ideas, and that that eventually will take us on a road to revolution after which people will be able to control and run society themselves. The, the kinds of activity that uh, Ron notes in his article protests, community organizing, players' strikes. I think that's all very important. Another thing that I think is important and I would like to see a lot more of are economic boycotts. I mean, there there were efforts in the early days of the George Floyd, uh, you know, the Minneapolis uprising and stuff to do economic boycotts. Some of that stuff was successful. I don't know. There, there seems to be some sentiment out there not to do this supposedly it hurts the people that we want to attract i i don't really understand it but i don't know why we just like say take your cheese and shove it well we don't need anything from wisconsin you know frankly and any of these places that they let so-called justice proceed in the way it does they can be hurt economically if people are united enough and the powers that be in places like that, they do financial trading through the New York markets. They've got uh, all kinds of accounts in New York banks. There's a lot that can be done in that way, which is not to say, I don't want to say at all, that self-defense is, is not important. I think it's becoming more important. But I think, again, that the major lesson that people have to learn is that the system of policing is working beautifully. It's working the way it's supposed to. But the system of, of, of liberal democracy in the United States is breaking and it's close to being broken. And people who are in favor of social justice, people who are in favor of racial equality, and those things have got to come to grips with the fact that the normal political channels are not succeeding, and I can't see that they're going to be likely to succeed in either affecting uh, positive change or even halting the advance of, of the far right. And I, I think that we need to have more of this uh, debate within the left and just to, to, to tell people look, you've got to think through all of these things that you've taken for granted. You've got to think them through uh, uh, again. What good does it do to write to your congresspeople? They know where the whole public stands and the public sentiment isn't moving You know, more than one or two points in any direction. What good is it to try to win elections when the Republican Party is trying to rig elections and, and to nullify voters' choices. We have to understand that the future of humanity rests with the movement from below and ideas that can meet the needs of the movement from below, not with writing to your Congress 
people and, 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 and this, this other kind of stuff where it's great when you got privileged white people who are in a situation where their Congress people actually care about what they think and say because they want to get reelected. We're no, we're no longer in that situation. Well, we are about out of time on this episode. So, Ron, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for and having thanks me. thanks once again to Andrew Clard uh, for, for joining us. It's been a very good conversation. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies.